I think if it was a documentary, it would be different. Yeah. But this was for entertainment. And uh, I think that they emphasized a lot of those parts. I don't think they ever had to go into a freezer to prepare themselves <laughs> for it. Uh, were they cold all the time? It seemed like yes. <laughs> but as athletes, as they warmed up, everything was fine. Hey, welcome to Off Script. I'm Liam Gibbler. We've got an interesting conversation today. I'm talking with Olympic bobsledder and Olympic bobsled coach Joe Tyler. In 1980, Joe placed sixth in the men's two at the Lake Placid Winter Olympic Games. Then, leading up to the 1988 Winter Olympic Games, Joe Tyler was sent to Jamaica to help build and coach the Jamaican bobsled team that would later be the inspiration for the 1993 film Cool Runnings. The coach in that movie, John Candy, was inspired by a mix of Olympic coaches Howard Siller and Joe Tyler. During this talk, I learned a lot about the team, uh, about the Olympics, and the emotional and physical toll of bobsledding. I hope you enjoy it, and thanks for joining us. Thanks for coming on. I appreciate you. Uh, thank you. It's good to be here. And uh, I'm excited to talk about some of my adventures. It's great, man. Uh, I was so excited to find out you live so close and that um, you're like a hidden gem on campus. Yes, uh, I'm a rather low-profile kind of guy like this, but all three of my daughters moved out here to Oregon, so I moved from the Lake Placid, New York area, out to here a few years ago, and uh, I love it. That's great. Mm -hmm. You're working at the, the gym now, you say? Yes, I'm a fitness assistant, and uh, I have to remember to stay in my own lane because I have my fashion of exercising, and so does everybody else. But I'm there for safety, uh, and I like uh, feel very comfortable in that setting because I've been an athlete my whole life. So Yeah. Well, I think we can kind of get into that a little bit. Like, What are your roots in athletics? Well, I grew up in Chicago, and I always felt I was a, a little a little more physically endowed than my age group. I went to high school after uh, I had gotten introduced into basketball and other sports, football, played football through high school and got 62 football scholarships uh, around the United States. And I chose the University of Dayton and um, I'm glad I did and had some wonderful friends for over the years that I still keep in touch with. And this is about 50 years ago now. Yeah. I know you had an accolade as a football player at Dayton. Mm -hmm. um, I remember it was, you were 1969 uh, Lineman of the Year, is that right? Mm -hmm. Yes, it's a, it was an amazing group that we had at the time. And uh, uh, again, I think it was early that they didn't have a lot of knowledge about sports medicine mm -hmm. and how to prevent injuries. Sure. You would just go out there and you would throw your body till it busted. Yeah. And then they wanted you to do more. So there, there wasn't much about rehab or, or unless it was a serious, you dislocated something or, you know, pulled your Achilles tendon off, which I did. Mm -hmm. uh, so if it's not serious, there was, there was no sports medicine. Uh, I mean, you had a trainer, you could go in a hot tub. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but that was about it. He, or you'd tape your ankles if you needed it. But uh, it was uh, quite a quite a risky business at the time. 
Right. One contrast today where, you know, you've got athletes who will sit out with just a little bit of soreness. Yes. And that's okay because, again, peak performance is so, um, it's so fleeting. So, uh, like when I was coaching the bobsled, I set them up on a four-year program so that they could uh, stair-step over the four years to peak right during the Olympics. So, um, my master's degree, the, the thesis was on, I can change fiber typing in the vast, in the quadricep muscles. Mm. I won't get too technical on that. And by taking a chunk, putting them on a 12 week training program, strictly to work on strength and power, mm -hmm. and then take another sample and see which of the three is transferred over into the power mode. Mm -hmm. uh, one, of the, one of three fibers goes either way, depending on how the body trains. If it trains endurance, it goes to endurance. If you train just for, for speed and power, it, it goes to that side. And I proved that it, that it worked on myself. And then I'd pass it on to the other athletes. Yeah. Um, I think one of the benefits of you being an Olympian before being the coach is you had the experience to back it up and you're now able to um, transfer that because you've got pretty clear leadership qualities there too. It's not like a coach is coming in with a uh, scholarly understanding of the sport. You've got this insider knowledge of how they come and train. Yes, uh, that was uh, very helpful. I've, I've done everything that I've tried to have people um, continue to train like that. Uh, training is very uh, task specific. So uh, ours was the first 50 meters made the whole race in bobsledding. If you could get a half a second at the start, all other variables being the same, you would be a second and a half ahead of the next guy. Mm -hmm. So if you could gain uh, a half a second on the start, you're all right. You can give up a second and a half over the finish. And you're talking again, in my case, it was 42 hundredths of a second that kept me out of a medal. So the start was the most critical, is the most critical feature, uh, unless the driver can't drive. <laughs> and can we get a little bit into the uh, the more, like what are the roles of the people in the bobsled? Yes, we have uh, two and four men. And then as I was transitioning as a coach, they started coming up with what's called a mono bob. It's one person. Mm. I think today they have the monobob for the women mm -hmm. and just the two-man and the four-man for the men and a two-man for the women. Mm. So that's the way it is today. But the sport is also uh, bonded with the skeleton sport. Mm -hmm. So it's called the United States Bobsled and Skeleton Federation. Mm. So you do the, the skeleton, which is a whole other sport. Now, I was helping to coach those athletes as well. I never really rode on a skeleton sled until one of the guys tripped and his sled started going down the hill. And so I just jumped on it and went down. It was uh, about halfway. I had to get off. I had no helmet. Uh, yeah. So uh, other than that, on the track, maybe this is getting off a little bit, but we used to slide shovels. We slid down the track. Everything we could slide on, we would slide on. We even slid down the ski jump. <laughs> so we just loved sliding, and uh, we wouldn't miss a day. And it was just uh, it was a real bonding of of this intense uh, physical thing that would, could happen to you, you know, if you weren't careful. 
And I also had a friend who, in 1981, was decapitated oh. in an accident. And uh, his brother was the announcer of, of the event. And his whole family's been involved in bobsledding for a long time. But uh, that's the way the sport has been. And uh, now there's a lot, a lot of safety, a lot more protection, uh, and a lot more doctors, <laughs> doctors available for what's going on there, which is uh, subtly brutal. And you don't realize it. It's like a, a train wreck. You have to know when to get in and when, when to stay with the sled in a wreck and when to get out. I tried to get out on one of the wrecks one year. My pant leg got caught on a boat and it drugged me down the run. In the process, broke a couple bones, another concussion. And then you have to decide, do I really want to keep this up? And uh, I decided that I was willing to die for the sport. That sort of helped me through those rugged times. Well, I had no idea at the intensity. Most people were tuning in. The Winter Olympics, that's our first time even seeing right. this thing. I know when you're watching on the TV, it's like, uh, okay, this, you can see a lot of physical action in the start because uh, everybody's got to push so hard and get in. Hmm. And then uh, there's the sense that you're just riding like in a station wagon or something uh, or a car. And it's really not like that. Uh, I remember my last competitive ride. We won the national championships on that ride, and I knew we were going to win the race. And so just before the final curve, I took my hand off my handholds to raise it in the air, raise my fist in exultation, and my driver hit a cut in the track. It popped me up, set me down, broke my tailbone. Mm -hmm. We still won the race. Um, so we were national champions again. I forget how many national championships my driver was. He, he must have had 10, but you've never heard of him. His name is Brent Rushlaw. <laughs> and I wanted to put that out there because he was in the Olympics with my brother in 84 in Sarajevo. So, and my brother went through a lot of the same accidents that I did. So your brother um, also went into Olympic bobsled? Yeah, I recruited him. <laughs> And uh, he made some national teams, won some medals, a lot of medals. It was in the Olympics there. I'm so glad for that. I didn't think I would be emotional here. <laughs> but uh, I guess these things are inside me. When I dig for them, it tells me they mean something. But it went from... Uh, one great thing to the next. I think I've had everything that money can't buy, and then some. But I've never had the money. <laughs> ah, but that's okay. I'll stick with what I've got. As the Olympics approached, they started sending sleds down and there were 42 accidents in a row. Mm. I was number 25 and number 33. Mm. The first one, I broke my foot in my hand, got a concussion. The second one, I broke my rib and stuck it in my liver. Mm. Finally, my driver, who was number 42, mm. sat with my brother and made it through. After that, it was more of a normal competition, but we were already USA 1, so I had time to heal. Yeah. While I was healing, 
I took to carrying a railroad tie up and down the track to keep my legs in shape for power. And I went to the top of the run one time and I look over and there's a whole group of people and who do I see but Joe Theismann, the quarterback from the Washington Redskins. And they were just sort of giving them tours of all the facilities. So I gingerly set my railroad tie down and gave it to his bodyguard and told them to hold this for me. Took Joe off to the side, told them about my rib conditions, and the next day his rib protectors were in my mailbox. Wow. I had one more accident before the Olympics, but the, uh, the rib protectors really helped, and I didn't further the injury. So I knew that we couldn't win because we didn't have the right equipment. Like in any race car, any kind of speed sport, if you ain't got the right machine, you're not gonna go. So we didn't have the right equipment. So my driver and I were trying to figure something out and the night before the Olympics, totally untested, I go in to help polish the sled up and he's cutting it in half with a chainsaw. <laughs> well, that's the last time I'll go after somebody with a live chainsaw. <laughs> Uh, but he said he saw something that the East Germans did, and he's going to try it. Hmm. So on our first run in the Olympic event, uh, we're going down the track, and he didn't cut the whole uh, slice big enough. And so pieces of plastic were flying off, cutting my eyes up. I got off the sled at the end. The cowl, which is the covering of it, the cowl came off. And we're standing at the side at the end trying to figure out what to do next because we have another run to do in about an hour. Hmm. East Germans came down next, stopped their sled. There was a team of eight athletes that came over and took care of their sled, put it in an 18-wheeler and tuned it up. Hmm. Then I looked over at my coach. He threw some duct tape at me and said, fix it. <laughs> and that was our technology at the point. He had to have the right equipment. My driver was in three Olympics, did not have the right equipment, never won a medal. Mm. If he would have had that at sled, yeah. he would have won gold all three times and gold every year out of Olympic years. Uh, so I feel a bit bad for him because he was a, a fabulous driver and he just didn't get that opportunity either. So. Yeah. I'd like to take a second to recognize our friends at Anthro Productions that helped make this episode possible. We had a last second drop for promo photos, so shot in the dark, I reached out to them. And not only did they make it happen for us on short notice, they set up one of the most efficient and professional photo shoots I've ever been a part of. Our photographers were Ryan and Nancy, and they could not have been nicer or more respectful. They took some truly incredible photos of me and Joe. And they're available for photo shoots for you too. Anthro Productions is an artist collective that specializes in photography and videography in Bend, Eugene, and Portland. Doesn't matter if you're commercial or small business, if you're looking for family portraits or for studio lighting, Anthro Productions is right for you. If you're interested in their services, reach out to info at anthroproductions.com or their number 541-604-2500. Those details will also be in this episode's description. Jamaicans, 
Yeah, yeah, we can talk about that too. All right. Uh, so after the Olympics, I was hired in the, as the the director of human performance, and uh, then the Jamaican government contacted us, the United States Bobsled Federation, and said they were thinking of having a a team, and they needed someone to come down and see if they could select a team. So I was the coach to go down. And I'd never been to a third world country before, so it was quite startling to see all the goats and all the dogs and a lot of poverty, uh, but a lot of happy people. And when I was there, I had some uh, fortune to be able to eat some jerked meat. Jerked meat they were serving, and I was taken out by one of the hosts, and they took me out for jerked goat and jerked dog. What does that mean, jerked? I've heard it's it like a times. jerky. It's they spice it all up. And to me, they all tasted the same and it just tasted like meat of some sort. <laughs> <laughs> but knowing what it was, it sort of turned it off, but it was still quite interesting. Sure. And uh, of course they had red striped beer, you know, which is uh, the Jamaican beer down there. But uh, I went and set up all my equipment uh, where they told me to go, which was a it looked like a bombed out soccer field. So I go there and I have timing lights and various ways to take measurements of physical abilities. And it's supposed to start at 10 o'clock. So I'm looking at my watch, it's five to 10 and I don't see anybody. And I look off to the side right where the jungle is and there's about 20 guys standing there. All of them have a whole bundle of sugar canes and a whole bundle of bananas under their arms. All I did was signal them to come over. They came over and put their goods where they thought was safe. They were there to trade for flour and trade for spices and stuff uh, to make their meals. So they came over and they all, none of them had shirts. They had cut off pants. A couple of them had shoes. And then I look to, uh, to the other direction and all of a sudden I see the army bus come up. So the army athletes... Uh, are excellent and uh, I think they get a lot of the athletes get a lot of support from their government that way and it's just great so they came over so we had the competitions and uh, I had to select eight people and uh, uh, six of them from, were from the army and two were from the crowd that was there uh, and I was so happy they were and then uh, I was able to make them a push sled to, and told them how to push and started taking films and and uh, it was uncertain as to who was going to be in what positions yet. And we told them that they could just stay under our wing and come with us uh, to Austria in October. So they, they came over, we sold them one of our sleds and they got all their equipment. Uh, and when they started, they had difficulty getting to the bottom. <laughs> But they were so uh, friendly and so happy. They had never really, had never seen snow. Uh, they had never been in the cold. So it, it was fascinating. And uh, they sold t-shirts that said Jamaican bobsled team. That first year they sold $100,000 worth <laughs> wow. of t-shirts. And uh, finally they, they started finding out who was the driver, who was a stronger brakeman, who was a good team up person and so they went uh, went on from there 
Now, the movie Cool Running, that, the, I'm John Candy for only part of it. Mm. I'm there for when he was in Jamaica selecting the team and moving them forward. Once I got them to Austria, I had to hire another coach because I was in charge of the USA team. And so, but I stuck with them and continued to do video analysis and any recommendations. Uh, and, and they were doing as well as many of the teams out there after a while. And then they started putting a little more funds available for the sled productions and they did even better. So then it got to Calgary in 1988, and this is where the film went, uh, Cool Running. There was an accident. Now, one of the rules on bobsledding is that you have to f cross the finish line with everything you started with. So that's like your helmets, your pads, uh, seat cushions, your sled. <laughs> yeah. So what happened is about three turns before the finish, the Jamaicans tipped over, and stopped before the finish line. Hmm. So it, whenever there's an, an accident, you can hear a pin drop on the entire course. This is any time, anywhere there's an accident because people want to know what's happened. So there was total silence. <laughs> and what they did then, they knew in order to finish the race, they had to cross the finish line. So. In actuality, they all got together and pushed the sled across. Mm. But in the movie, it showed them picking it up and putting it on their shoulders. Now, this is a 600-pound sled. <laughs> so it was good for the film. It was very good for the film. And, uh, and it was good for them in general. And then they continued on, and I think they do as well as any team now. Uh, it's just they, they started going into their athlete pool which I think is great, as you notice in track and field, particularly. Right. So it's just converting them again to, to a 50-meter sprint rather than distances or other things. Totally. I think uh, what's really interesting is that um, I've heard a few different accounts of the movie, and some people claiming that as little as 3% is accurate. <laughs> <laughs> well, some the one thing I know that was... He was touted as the coach who had slid, but there were people who would put extra weights on the sled because it was a gravity sport. Mm -hmm. So if you were heavier, you could go faster, just, just out of uh, physics and gravity. But what some guys started to do, they were so desperate to make the teams, they put in like 50, 60 extra pounds. And after they finished the finish line, before they got to stop on the finish ramp, they were throwing weights out of the sled. Because as soon as you're finished, you have to get on the scales and weigh yourself and all your equipment. Yep. And, uh, you know, it was to me it was so obvious. And uh, the people who did it, fortunately, weren't in the running. But they were desperate people do desperate things. So that's what they were trying. So in the movie, they showed that. They showed that somehow he had tarnished his reputation by uh, putting extra weight in the sled and he wasn't allowed to and all that. But that, that I think, was a good thing to point out, but uh, it didn't really happen. It was just for the movie. Yeah. <laughs> but they were, they were very excited. Uh, uh, to continue to do this, and they uh, they beat a lot of countries with them, so they got a lot of satisfaction from that. I always feel like I should go back there and, and spend about four years with them, you know, and, and see what I could do in development. But uh, 
I like what I'm doing right now. Yeah. I think, uh, I know that um, kind of the world came out to support the Jamaicans. Um, one of the things that people were really clear in distinction between the movie and life was that um, there wasn't much animosity. Like in the movie, the, the East Germans are the bad guys. Yeah. But in, in reality, actually, I have this stat, it's written down here somewhere. It was some crazy uh, percentage higher than people who would normally turn up for these came just to cheer on the bu- uh, Jamaican bobsled team. Yes, they were so popular to, you know, that they were cheered on. It was, it, they were like the dark horse. They were the ones that weren't supposed to do well. And uh, it was su- surprising that they, they did start doing well. No, it, there was no particular country that was a bad guy also that was shown in the movie. It, we were all competitive, all competitive, but we also had this bond with each other because we're all experiencing this, the same kinds of stresses and uh, competition. So in the end, we're, we're really close, all of us in that brotherhood. But uh, sure, you taunt everybody, you know, it's just, can you get into their head a little bit? Can you say, is that the best you can do? Or, <laughs> right, yeah. or, or so that a lot of that does go on, you know, but all in all, the Jamaicans, uh, they, they were a real uh, fun lot. And again, they, they went out of their way to take pictures and uh, just uh, were a real novelty. And, and I agree with you. I think anytime they were on there, and I think the movie had something to do with it too at these days. And so it was, it's really cool. I'd like to see some other countries jump in there that haven't had any representatives. Uh, some of the sleds come in one year and not another. Someone will contact, like from Ireland, uh, will bring something in because he's got an, an Irish national. Uh, he's, an, he's an Irish national, so he can do that. Or right. I don't know. It's nobody from Antarctica yet. We <laughs> have a lot of snow there and ice. So, <laughs> <laughs> but there are there are probably a lot of potential athletes out there that can transfer into this sport, and that's what's happening. And. Uh, the women, the women blow me away as far as uh, their physical abilities today and what they do uh, in the bobsled world. It's, it's fabulous. It's the best athletes uh, that I've seen of women it's, has been those that are the national team training. Uh, they're really amazing. So, and, uh, and they know how to win. So we'll see what happens over the years. <laughs> And uh, just really quick, I found that stat. It's uh, The ESPN described it as a crowd of 40,000 people for an event that normally houses about 5,000. <laughs> well, as an athlete and coach, you very seldom notice the crowd. Right. Uh, it's just uh, you're, you're so focused on what you're going to do. Again, because there, you were talking thousands of a second. Just little things, and you, and the focus is so. I, I've never noticed how many people are there until the ceremonies at the end, when uh, and then I'm overwhelmed by all the people. But uh, when you're on a sled, it's uh, you're. Lo- I'm looking at the a thread on the back of the shirt of my driver, and when that thread moves, I move. Right. And and all this is to uh, be ahead of the sled. You can't as soon as you get behind it, sled sled takes over, and you can go anywhere. And, and, and if you're, but if you can stay just that, not even a second, just a moment, 
ahead of it, it make it'll make it from a from a tip over to a winner. Yeah, and that's the line that people are looking for. It's called a speed line, uh, and you can't waver through curves like that. But uh, there's you know it's going faster and faster, and I think that's great. So I think the sport is just going to do terrific over forever, as far as I know. Yeah. Um, and I know you you were a pusher, right? Is that what's the... That's what you call it. Yes, there's drivers and then there's pushers. Uh, what I was the best at was, uh, again, the two-man sled weight 400 pounds and the four-man 600. So getting the mass moving was what I could do. So it was like a, a power lift to start with, a lot of hip motion. And um, then it was just driving the sled. Uh, and you had to find people who could get their stride sequence correct. Uh, so you never had any uh, stride that went into the air. You were always digging ice uh, from the moment that you start going like this. And some guys could jump onto the sled easier from the right side, others from the left, others are left-handed and right-handed. Uh, others couldn't do the initial start, but they could be sprinters. So in my brother's case, when he was on our foreman, I was the brake man. I would get going, but he's been a fabulous sprinter his whole life, so he stays out on the sides. Hmm. And then I just get on and go up into the seat number two behind my driver because I, I was more familiar with my driver than anybody else. So I would go in there, and that that's a good team. So you had to find out who would be best at each of those positions. And we were really working hard on with science, uh, velocity, acceleration concepts. It, it, was, it was fabulous. Uh, I just couldn't get enough of it. Well, I know that uh, you were described before that first Olympic Games as one of the best men in shape. Like a journalist from out of Dayton said that you were um, considered one of the strongest men in the sport before breaking your rib. Yes, well, I, I, that started when I was in college playing football. Where I was able to bench 400 pounds, uh, and, but I couldn't get any heavier. I would stay at 210. And I, uh, after the, that, when I started training for bobsledding, uh, I knew it was my legs that needed to put on some mass. And so I just uh, revamped my whole program, set myself up on a periodization program for four years, and, and did it. So at the oppor next opportunity I had to go to school, I, I continued to put into the, <laughs> learn the theories that I was applying and how come that was working. So, uh, yes, but when I started training, I put on uh, 50 pounds on my legs. Uh, so I was up to 225. See, and the heavier, again, you can get without going over you can't weigh any heavier than a certain mark. I'm, I'm sort of lost for word on it's something like 365 or 400, somewhere in there. Mm -hmm. And if you went a pound over it, you're disqualified. Huh. So uh, if, you, if you had it on your person, you could take it off the sled. The sled's lighter, you can push faster. So now the guys are real beefy. They're all both 200 and something, and uh, the sled, they can't find things to get make it lighter, but they are. They're changed to Kevlar instead of plastic cowls that cover the sled and, and uh, just a lot of uh, stronger steel and a lot of runner development uh, needs to work. There was uh, a lot of cheating going on, putting Teflon on runners uh, when I was, uh, and they weren't really disqualifying people for it. They just didn't want it to happen. 
nowadays, I think that sled technology and the science, you can get down to the microscopic levels mm -hmm. and really smooth that blade out. Uh, but you look at it and you polish it with 6,000 grit on, on a, from a sandpaper and it's still, it needs more. It needs to go to 60,000. <laughs> right. And that gets you that half a second. Yeah. So. And that could be all the difference in... Yes, especially yeah. that started. Yeah, I can go from one to one to eighth place <laughs> in a second. I think uh, another thing that I thought was really interesting was that those games you're you're based right near Lake Placid, but then the games actually happen near Lake yes. Placid as well. Yes, so that was fortunate for me because the uh, the accommodations that were made for the athletes uh, was reserved for a federal prison when we were done, <laughs> but. Until the Olympics were over, it was the athletes' housing. But I didn't have to stay there uh, because I lived right uh, just outside of Lake Placid. Uh, and, and, but I worked there for 15 years then later. Yeah. But uh, it was nice. Uh, opening ceremonies was terrific. I was just, it was so, it was so interesting. And we were next to the Russians. And because uh, it's USSR and there was USA. And I look over at all the Russian athletes and they're all 40 or older. And I couldn't figure it out. And I found out that they were all KGB because they had heard there might be some kind of a hostile event during the opening ceremony. So they replaced all their athletes with uh, different Russian persons. Wow. It was one thing. Uh, I also enjoyed riding the bus with uh, Eric Hyden, who won five gold medals during the 80 Olympics. And I had to get on the bus and we were going somewhere. I think it was to the opening ceremonies. There was only one seat with one person and it was Eric Hyden. So I go over there and I said, move over. <laughs> and he looked at me and says, I am over. And I looked at the size of his thighs no wonder he won those gold medals. He was his size were just unbelievably massive, and it's just what he needed for his sport. So, so you got to hobnob a little bit with different people. I went to that uh, Miracle on Ice Russian uh, USA game, uh, which uh, to me I don't know if a lot of people knew that they had played the Russians about twenty times in the last year or so, and the Russians were beating them like. 12 to nothing, 15 to 2, uh, 20 to 5, just just slaughtering them. And this, that's why one of the incentives that they won was such an overwhelming victory. Uh, but I had my whole family there, and it was really great. And the town of Lake Placid, as you know, went crazy. Uh, party just didn't stop after that. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> What? I said, we'll cut this out. <laughs> sure. And I guess I'm wondering, like, did you enjoy the movie or like, what was your take on it? Oh, yes. I felt very personal, especially in the, there's one, the one shot where my most involvement was, was when I went to Jamaica. So uh, when I see them pushing that uh, push sled in the summer <laughs> and almost crashing it up, 
I, I just sort of feel a sense of uh, pride in that. I, I made that sled for them, you know, along with a, a, another person in in, an, in the yard that had a lot of iron iron products. So we, we were able to do that. That was uh, really fun to do. Um, back to your question. Yeah, so just, just about like a... Um, it seems like... From, oh, I, yeah, well, I think if like, it was a documentary, it would be different. Yeah. But this was for entertainment. And uh, I think that they emphasized a lot of those parts. I don't think they ever had to go into a freezer to prepare themselves <laughs> for it. Uh, were they cold all the time? It seemed like, yes. <laughs> but as athletes, as they warmed up, everything was fine. And they got used to it, to me, just very... Uh, very easily as far as a, you know, acclimatizing to what they need to do. But yes, they were very curious watching everybody, how they trained, how they, uh, what they did with their sleds. They had to learn everything, just like everyone who starts a, a new uh, activity. You got to learn it all. And they did. And I, I, I really congratulate them for uh, what they did uh, in a small amount of time. Some of these other teams have been here since the 1930s. Yeah. And they're just starting here, in, you know, in the mid '80s. So, it's. Uh, I hope they stay with it. You know, I think I, I really like their athletes there. So I think they will uh, come up with. They can come up with some uh, amazing push times from them athletes. So, I think, well, yeah, I think it's been it's been really interesting. I'd love to uh, briefly uh, hear about your your jewelry business and the events uh-huh. you've been doing. Well, I, what I do is I go rock counting. My daughter's uh, got me into this because the the school is between home. The rock shop was in the middle. So it's like every time we came home from school, we stopped at the rock shop. And then the lady told me there was a, a moonstone mine in town. So we went out. Uh, I went out to get moonstone and I got hundreds of pounds. And so I collected, started collecting. And then going through the Adirondacks, I found places where you could get a lot of garnets and various other gems. And so I would go out hunting for them. So I collected and collected probably for 20 years. I never sold or even thought about it, but then I was getting so much material. My wife suggested that I uh, do something about that. So I did. And uh, now I've been doing this. I sell at a booth again downtown uh, in Bend here, across from the library every Saturday. And, uh, I probably sell about uh, 15 to 20 pieces every Saturday. Yeah. Plus, I have a free box for the kids, <laughs> and I have an outlet for Moroccan geodes, and I break them up to about sizes of quarters, and they're, and I put them in this free box, and the kids just love them, and it makes me happy to be able to pass something like that forward. Yeah, I know my brother would love you. Yeah. <laughs> Well, when I mentioned to the parents, there's a free rock box, I hear most of the time, oh, they love rocks. <laughs> right. And my comeback is always, I do too. <laughs> well, uh, thanks so much for coming. I really appreciate you coming on this. It's been, your story's so interesting and I appreciate you sharing it with us. You're welcome. I, I was surprised how, how much it hit me emotionally. Uh, but I guess it's, again, like I said, it's, uh, it's been important parts of my life. So thank you for the interview. It's been uh, quite exciting for me. Thank you. That was Olympian and Olympic coach Joe Tyler. These days he works part-time at the COCC campus and sells rocks and jewelry at the Saturday market. There's a link in the description uh, if you want to support him.
I've started performing stand-up and music regularly around town. I try to post my paid shows to my link tree and the Broadside website. Uh, feel free to contact me on social media about shows or mics around town. Offscript with Liam Gibbler is a Broadside podcast. To keep up to date with Central Oregon news, events, and satire, go to thebroadsideonline.com. I've got a long list of thank yous this time. Grateful for everyone who helped out. Special thanks to Lily Raff McCullough for funding, to audio consultants Jake Wilson Goodwin, Micah Gamalog, and Tristan Hackbart, to Aaron Rashid for setting up this interview, to Mel Smith for graphic design, and again to Anthro Productions for sponsoring this episode. Offscript is a new ad campaign coming out. Just keep an eye out for that, and thank you for listening.